Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Mike Dash. Mike has been on the show before. Um, He came on to talk about the jaw-dropping story of the wreck of the Batavia. And we also did an episode when he talked about the notorious, but still perhaps not well understood story of tulip mania in Holland. In addition to his books on these subjects, he's written he's written many others, including a book on the early days of the mafia in America about the practice of, I don't know if I've got the pronunciation right, thuggy in the 19th century in India. That is correct. In the English version, the uh, Indians would call it uh, taggy, but yes, people, we, th- we think about them as thugs. And also about the wonderfully corrupt world of New York policing back in the early 1900s. And I was Googling Mike to find out a bit more about his background. And one quote sort of jumped out at me uh, in the context of what we're going to talk about today, which is Andrew Roberts talking about Mike said he has carved out a place for himself among historians of the hauntingly bizarre. And hauntingly bizarre seemed to me to be a great way to introduce what we are going to talk about today, which is the practice of sin eating. Anyway, uh, welcome, Mike, to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. We're going to talk about sin eating, and do you want to set the scene? Can you transport us back into the world of the sin eater? Yes. I mean, it's a word that actually I find quite a lot of people recognize. Culturally speaking, it's quite commonplace, and sin eating appears on television, in films, in novels fairly frequently, more so than it probably occurred historically speaking. But what we're talking about here is a a strange, peculiar, obscure, secretive practice of taking on the sins of dead people so that they could proceed to heaven. So the idea is that the sin eater is a sort of an outcast in a, a small rural community. Most rural communities apparently would have had one. The stories that we have for the most part come from Wales and the Welsh borderlands, but For a lot of people, it's a a more widespread practice than that. And when somebody died, the person who was responsible for having them buried, a member of their family, would call in the local sin eater to have them take the person's sins onto themselves. And they would do this by a sort of ritual, which normally involved eating and drinking a piece of bread, perhaps some salt, um, a draught of ale. Um, The earliest account that we have of this, which unequivocally describes sin eating, comes from um, a book published actually by an English surgeon who lived in Wales in the 1820s and 1830s. It's called The Mountain Decameron, and it describes a story. It's rather one of these rather frustrating stories where nobody is named and nowhere is dated, and it's going to be very (laughs) hard to follow this up. But basically, the story goes like this. An English traveller who is travelling down the west coast of Wales, so through the the most Welsh parts of Wales, the most culturally Welsh, the most Welsh-speaking parts of Wales, sometime in the last years of the 18th century, the 1780s, 1790s, he was riding along the road that stretched from Harlech to Aberystwyth, and it's coming on to, to dark, and he's crossing the River Dovey. And he's warned that you know he's, he's about to enter a place where there's a, a huge heat marsh. The English called it Borth Bog. And it's dangerous to proceed by night through this marsh because you could just be swallowed up by it. So he looks for somewhere to stay. And he sees this light in the far distance. It's the light of a candle. So as Downs, Joseph Downs, the author of this book, describes it, you know, he, he approaches this, this hovel on the edge of a Welsh village, um, which has got a light outside. And as he gets near, he realises the reason it has a light outside it 
is that somebody has just died in the cottage and this this sort of wild Welsh woman emerges from the cottage calling in her sort of wild Welsh way at the top of her voice for someone to, to come. Um, and as he looks inside the door, he can see that there's a corpse lying inside it, which has been laid out. And on the chest of the corpse, this woman has placed a bowl with some bread on it and a, and a, a draught of ale. And after a while, there's an answering call in this sort of blustery, storm-ridden atmosphere that Downs punches up. And gradually, this sort of, this figure emerges from the mist. This is the local Sin Eater. We're told by Downs that he lives somewhere on the shoreline between the sort of high tide mark and the and the normal um, sort of edge of the sand dunes in a sort of construct. It's a bit like the construct you see in the film Local Hero, if you know that, where where the uh, the local um, beachcomber lives in this sort of hut that he's sort of put together from bits, odd bits of driftwood and, and nails and sea wrecks and so on. And nobody dares go near this man because because he's such a sort of a feared figure. He he turns up and he he does his little ritual over the the corpse. And and this account of Downs, which was published in 1836, this is the earliest account that we have of sin eating. And it has some very interesting aspects to it, as I say, apart from the anonymity. This is an English person seeing a Welsh custom. The implication we get is that it's normal in Wales, but it's portrayed as something very peculiar and alien because I mean, in, you know, in conventional religious terms, what this guy is doing is, is it shouldn't be happening because it's not the job of a, an, you know, a, an unlicensed sin eater to do this. The, you know, the, the local church should be taking care of it, and an ordained priest should be taking care of sort of prayers for the for the dead and so on. And so there's something, you know, sort of rather unearthly, supernatural, wrong about this whole affair in this account, and also in many of the other accounts that we have with it. So that's the first one that we have. It dates to 1836, as I say. Um, there are a couple of others that go a little bit earlier we can talk about later, which are um, not quite so straightforward as that. But from that, we have a, a small corpus. And when I say small, probably only a couple of dozen cases, historically speaking, of this sort of thing happening. But from that, a construct has been built um, by folklorists mainly, which suggests that it was tremendously widespread, certainly in in Celtic parts of the world, and from there it spread. So, for example, the Appalachian Mountains in America, which was inhabited by emigrants from the sort of Celtic regions of, and the Gaelic regions of um, Britain, that's also supposed to be a hotbed of sin eating. And from there it gets picked up. So, for example, I mean, you know, most famously perhaps for, for people today, if you read the Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander books, one of the sailors on board this ship, the Surprise, which is at the centre of all of these stories, he's a sin eater, and he's ended up on the ship because he's so outcast that even his outcast community won't won't bear him anymore. And he's also an object of sort of superstition and, and, and concern amongst the other members of the ship because of his apparently supernatural powers. What kind of people then are sin eaters? Is it is it how does the sin eater know what he's supposed to do? Because I have this picture of the sin eater. He's an outcast from society. Mm. He's he's impoverished. Where do they learn their trade? Well that is an extremely good question because there is no sort of sin-eating academy. Um, and there is no kind of, you know, um, guild of sin-eaters which one can join and, and be be instructed from. I mean, the, the impression one gets from the sources is that it's a an age-old custom which everybody in the village understands. And, you know, a sin-eater is selected, effectively, who will already know what to do. But the simple answer as to what sort of person they are, I mean, you know, again, as normally depicted, they are basically tramps, outcasts, people who are at the you know below the bottom end of society 
only such a person would do the job because, I mean, you know, you get paid for it. You get paid quite well for it. It's sort of sixpence or half a crown. It depends upon the source. But a reasonable amount of money for a poor person. But the problem is this, right? It's not just a matter of you go in there, you say your prayer, the person is freed from their sins, their soul goes to heaven. This only happens because you, the sin eater, have taken their sins on board your own soul. And so the more you do this, the more burdened your own soul gets to the point where obviously, you know, when you die yourself, there's no possibility whatsoever that you could go to heaven because you've got every sin that every person you've ever helped committed weighing down your own soul and you're probably going straight to the other place. And this, is, of course, is one of the reasons why people fear the sin eater. They are sort of almost a hellish figure, actually, in spite of of all the good they do. And for that reason, they are normally the most outcast of outcasts. And that's why I think Downs, in his description, portrays this man living in a sort of, you know, a hovel in the margins of the most marginal village in a marginal part of Britain. It's as far out from the, the what's acceptable and decent and Christian as you can possibly get. And yet there is a strong Catholic vibe here because uh, the Protestants don't believe that you need to have your sins washed away through through some ritual or through some rite, whereas the Catholics sort of do believe that you need to uh, go to confession, you have the last rites. But these areas that you're talking about, they all seem to be to be strongly Protestant. Is that not right? Well, I think you're absolutely right, and that's an extremely interesting clue as to what's maybe going on here. Um, the earliest accounts that we have of this happening actually you know, the, the account I've given you from what the 1790s is the earliest detailed one, but there are earlier reports that sort of mention it occurring without going into much detail, which date back to approximately 1640. So that's the period just around about the time of the English Civil Wars, um, the ascendancy of, of Puritanism, not just Protestantism. And you know, I mean, the interesting thing about all of these accounts, I mean, Downs is one, but you know, the, the earlier ones are like they're the same, weirdly enough, even though they're 200 years earlier is that sin eating is always just out of reach. It's something which was common before, but is now something which is increasingly rare and, in fact, dying out. And that's the way it's described in the 1640s. So, I mean, if you take that literally and say, well, okay, that's the earliest we can trace it back and it's dying out then, then you are taking it back to some point in the 15th century and, in fact, the Reformation period where Protestantism does replace Catholicism. And the way the historians are now increasingly seeing the Reformation period is not the sort of old-fashioned way where we're invited to see Protestantism as a sort of welcome addition to the scene which people have been crying out for because, you know, they see Catholicism as a corrupt religion which is, you know, needs to be replaced. You know, that's a version of events, a history that was popularised when the first academic histories were written, and that's in the 19th century in places like Oxford and Cambridge, you know, small but salient fact. To be a don in Oxford and Cambridge in the 19th century, you had to be an ordained Anglican clergyman. That was one of the main qualifications for the job. And hence it's... What? <laughs> Could you just say a bit more about that? <laughs> well, I mean, they are both established establishments, so to speak, which are closely related to the Church of England. Quite a number of Oxford and Cambridge colleges were literally founded to teach people how to become priests. So, I mean, Trinity Hall, Cambridge is an example of a college that was founded in the, the wake of the Black Death because all the priests had died tending people during the Black Death and there was a need for more priests. And at first, all they, you know, I mean, they, they basically taught mainly, I mean, once you got through the original undergraduate curriculum, you were supposed to go on to do a master's degree, which was largely going to be in theology. You would learn either canon law or church law. And so they were basically existed as places to create priests. And, and, and yes, you had to be a clergyman to teach that. 
And so it's not very surprising at all that the first histories of the Reformation written by these Oxford and Cambridge dons in the 19th century portrayed Protestantism as a welcome uh, innovation in, in England. But the way in which we're encouraged to see it today, there's been quite a bit of revisionism with this, is that you know the Catholic Church was much more powerful, much more beloved, actually, than, than we were taught at school all those years ago. And you know, when you think about it, that makes a certain amount of sense because irrespective of, you know, sort of the, the theology, and obviously for the average churchgoer, theology was an abstract thing, which they didn't know much about, not least because they were mostly illiterate in this period. And apart from anything else, the Bible was in Latin in, in the Catholic Church, almost literally to stop you from finding out the fine details of what you're supposed to think about. This is lies at the heart, obviously, of Martin Luther's critique. To, let's not talk too much about this. We're here to talk about sin eating, not theology. But um, anyway, I mean, the way in which we now see it is that the Catholic Church is essentially the timekeeper for your life. And it's there for all the important moments. It's there when you're born, it christens you, it, it brings you into its community at the time of confirmation, it marries you, and eventually it's going to bury you. Um, and your annual peregrination through the months and the years, they're marked by mainly Christian festivals, you know, Easter, Christmas, Harvest Festival, and so on. And so the uh, and the time your village gets together every week is for the Sunday service. And so, you know, the Catholic Church is, is there as a sort of centerpiece for everybody's life, irrespective of whether or not they are sort of, you know, believers in the fine details of, you know, transubstantiation or whatever. So as you pointed out, I mean, you know, one of the things that changes, the most important thing in some respects, certainly from the point of view of this discussion, that changes with the Reformation is the abolition of purgatory. Um, and purgatory, of course, is the idea that there's a sort of way station between heaven and hell. To be clear, this is something that the Catholic Church essentially invents around about 1000, uh, probably in, essentially in, in response to the way in which you know, it's, it, it's a very difficult thing to accept that, you know, committing one mortal sin has guaranteed that your dad, your mum, your sister, somebody you love has gone to hell forever and there's nothing you can do about it. Purgatory gives you some hope because there is something you can do about it because it's a sort of way station where you go to be cleansed of your sins so that you are able to be taken into heaven in due course. And due course might mean a few years, but for most people in Catholic doctrine, it's thousands of years. Now, the Catholic Church over the years developed this system where you could help people out of purgatory by praying for them or by paying for them. This, again, goes back to Martin Luther and his critique that there was a certain amount of abuse of the the paying for it bit where the church would sell indulgences and various other things that would effectively act as sort of get out of jail free cards for people in purgatory and would take the money. So sin eating is a sort of, um, you know, construct which makes a lot of sense in the, you know, with the concept of, of, of purgatory in mind. The suggestion that human beings can do things to free people of sins is at the center of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. So the idea that sin eating might have been dying out around about 1640, having been flourishing before that, does potentially suggest it has something to do with the Reformation and might be seen as a sort of a survival of old Catholic doctrine in a sort of folk form, which is something which has definitely has happened in, in other cases. I mean, there, there's quite a lot of folklore associated with this to do with things like the ritual ringing of church bells or um, the eating at, at um, funerals of, of um, you know, sort of special cakes and so on. All of those are sort of, you know, elements of Catholicism that survive into the Protestant era because they are no longer associated with Catholicism and are associated with, instead with folklore. Uh, you mentioned the eating of special cakes. It does seem like funerals are sort of associated with eating. In Scotland, the body was traditionally laid out 
people sat there with the body for however many days and you know the the, the neighbors and the friends and uh, whoever would come round and they had to be supplied with food during all this period and another i was looking at japan which is a favorite place for me again you have the the close relatives they sit with the body overnight and they eat and drink together so they go all the way through the night and i think that's slightly died out now and it's only for an hour or two that they do it but but they still do it and then the next day everybody comes around and and they again I wouldn't say it's a ritual meal, but there's a meal and there's drink, quite a lot of drink. I think people get quite get quite drunk. You're absolutely right. That I mean, you know, certainly in Western culture, there's a close association, which there still is, between you know funerals and, and and feasting. I mean, today we tend to regard it as a sort of you know way of celebrating someone's life rather than grieving for them. But undoubtedly, in the past, you know, there was a ritual element to this, and there were one or two accounts in the in the sort of sinning corpus of. No, I mean again. I mean this. What, what we're seeing constantly is outsiders going into a community that practices this and being being quite shocked to find out what's going on. And you know, there's an account. I think it's from um, from Shropshire or Herefordshire, where um, a farmer is invited to a um, one of his tenants, uh, his farm workers' houses, to celebrate a, a funeral, and is offered a glass of beer and refuses it. And the, the shocked farmer says, "But you must drink, sir. It's it's for our sister's soul." And so there's, you know, there's a sort of crossover here where maybe it's becoming a sort of celebration, a feast, an opportunity to get together and get drunk and remember somebody. But it starts off as something, you know, closer to this taking on of sins idea through through eating and drinking. And of course, I mean, you know, you don't have to go very deeply into Christian theology to know that, you know, the communion ceremony, the mass. I mean, that's literally what happens, isn't it? You know, it's the Christ taking on sins through the 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 you know the body and the blood of Christ. So. Yeah, this is an intensely Christian thing, which is being celebrated in ways that you know are more formal, more foundational, more more uh, more proper. They would see themselves as Christians find to be quite shocking, but is regarded, at least in the way that it's presented in the stories, as normal, natural, and the right thing for these superstitious communities from below. And this is the uh, another of the peculiarities of the sin eating corpus is that we have no account whatsoever of sin eating that comes from inside a community that practices it. Every single account that exists describes it through the lens of a shocked outsider. Quite interesting that you mentioned uh, master and commander because sailors are sort of notorious for being superstitious, you know, all the way back to Jonah and the whale where they, where they throw him overboard. Mm. And superstition, it's incredibly uh, tenacious. It's there, it's, it's, under the surface, well, particularly in religious communities, but when I was talking to Stacey Schiff about the witchcraft at Salem, I mean, all the witchcraft stuff was, was, was nonsense. There were no witches flying through the air. People weren't writing things in books. They weren't talking to their spirits, but they were practicing magic. You know, your, your superstitious magic was actually going on in, in the community. Well, I mean, yeah, from the historian's point of view, you know, I mean, what you're describing is fair enough, but we're using the wrong words to describe it. I mean, superstition is a word that means, you know, a belief that I don't share. That's what makes it superstitious. Whereas, you know, religion is a belief that I do share. <laughs> um, and so to think of it as superstition is actually very unhelpful. It's a belief that happens in the community that believes in those things in which we don't happen to share. That's why we label it that way. But that is to be too dismissive of it. It's very important, potentially in those communities. And that is absolutely the way that sin eating is portrayed as something which is foundational and important and not to be done away with. To go back to one of your previous points, I mean, 
one other thing I can perhaps introduce at this point, I mean, this question of how sin eating, how people become sin eaters. We only have a single account that describes this. It comes from Cambridgeshire from around 1825, where a woman in a village on uh, the on the Little Ooze River, I mean, again, I mean, this is like the Fenland, it's, it's the back of beyond, it's 20 miles outside the, the civilization that is Cambridge and so on. She took an overdose of poppy tea. So poppy tea was something which was quite a popular sort of um, night ta- nightcap, effectively, that you would drink to get yourself to sleep during that, that period. Of course, it's got effectively opium in it. Um, or you would use it to quieten down babies from crying and couldn't be stopped crying any other way. She took an overdose of poppy tea so strong that she, they thought she was going to die. So they called in the local priest. He arrived and absolved her of her sins. And then unexpectedly, she woke up again. And that's when she became a sin eater. She was informed, in fact, that she was now the village sin eater by the other people in the village who pointed out to her that she was in the perfect position to do this job because she was now free of all her sins. She was <laughs> in a position to take on other people's sins. And that's the way that it was It was framed by the folklorist who picked this up from a, a woman who was a school teacher about 100 years later who'd heard it from you know, a, an old woman who she had taught, who's, you know, who, who remembered it from her childhood. It's that sort of you know, distance that we often get in these sinning cases. But that's the only time that we see this actually happening. And it is remarkable. Again, I mean, as, as I was saying earlier, that you know, it's portrayed as something where you know, everybody knows how it's supposed to happen. There's no particular need for training. You just It's the circumstances. The person is either pure, as this woman was, because she had been freed from her sins, or already irredeemable, I suspect, as these sort of wretched tramp-like figures living on the outskirts of the village are, are quite literally scapegoats, another, another old religious concept which is quite often associated, actually, with sin-eating. Just say a little bit about scapegoats, because that comes from probably Leviticus, if I had to guess. Yes, well, that's right. So, the, the, you know, and again, I mean, you know, the idea is you pick something to act as a sacrifice for the good of the whole community, effectively. And and sin eating is is done in the same sort of way, isn't it? It's it's one person helping everybody else. They die as the scapegoat dies, but everybody else gets away with it, and that's the idea. So yes, I mean it's a, it's something which the sin eater perhaps is not that happy about. But I mean, their choice is between living or dying. In the sense of if they don't do it, they have no income; they will starve to death. That's the that's the way it's presented. At any rate, um, it's not something that people normally happily volunteer for. Again, you know, I mean, part of the problem with all of this, from, the, from my perspective as a historian, is you know the sort of the variety of, of stories you get where there are exceptions is also sort of slightly worrying. I mean, again, it goes back to this whole idea that there's not not a central sort of corpus or a repository of, of, of clear sort of doctrine here. But you don't have to go very far if you start exploring sin eating to discover the story of the very last sin eater. Um, the BBC did quite a lot of coverage of this back uh, in the early, what, 2010, I think it was, 2006, 2010. But this is a man from a village called Ratlinghope, which is, I've been there, it's a very isolated area in the upland areas of Shropshire on the border with Wales quite a few miles from the other next village. And this guy was, he, he was not uh, a, a sin eater in the sense of that we've been dealing with so far of being somebody who's on the outskirts of the community. Um, he's somebody who's had, you know, a, a, a terrible tragedy before his, his family. His name was Richard Munslow. He died in 1906. And he was, I mean, you know, you, you can dig up the records in the local archives he was quite a well-off farmer in this area. He he lived in Rattling Hope from, for almost 40 years, um, and he farmed 20 or 40 acres and had 
quite a few people working for him. But you know, the story is that you know, he became a sin eater in the um, in the 1870s when three of his children died of fever within a week, and he did it as a sort of recompense, as a way of of sort of cleansing his own guilt of being a, a, a grieving father. He agreed to become the village sin eater. And he, of course, doesn't meet the sort of model that we've been painting, you know, or building here of, of, of a tramp type figure. He's 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 a middle class, upper middle class, even in Rattinghope's ideas, and he volunteers for the job. Now we know about him allegedly being a sin eater because you know there's a, you know a monument in the village churchyard that was being rebuilt at this time; it had fallen down, um, and a, a local local historian put you know published a little piece about this this monument in the churchyard which was basically just in, um, an information sheet it was given away in the local parish church um, and from that um, you know the, the idea of Munzo being a sin eater that had circulated from this little information sheet exactly how the how the writer of this um, who was a local canal historian established what he said about Munzo is completely opaque there's no evidence in the churchyard on the monument or in any local records at all, that Munslow was seen as a sin eater by anybody when he was alive. But we now see it as, as you know, I mean, it's just entered into folklore, so to speak, not least because the BBC published two stories on, on their website. This man was the last sin eater, and people just accept it without looking into it, which is what they probably should be doing. Uh, I mean, you sound a little bit sceptical about that, but was there not a Professor Evans, and we can surely trust a professor if we can trust anyone, uh, of the Presbyterian College in Carmarthen, and he reports that he actually saw a sin eater back in 1825. Because I'm just not quite clear, listening right. to you, just how convinced you are by the stories well, that have come down. I, I'm divided over this. I mean, to answer the last question first, and I'll deal with Professor Evans. I mean, from a theological point of view, sin eating makes a tremendous amount of sense. The idea that, you know, I mean, of having sins removed, and that would be something, if, if it were possible, that would be a very popular service. So you could easily imagine that every community would want to have such a person. Theologically, it's reasonable. Historically, it's not reasonable because the, the corpus is so peculiar. As I've said, I mean, every single case comes from outside the community, and that includes Professor Evans of the, of the, um, of the Presbyterian College seeing the sin eater in this little village um, Clan Dovey, I think it's called, um, in in West Wales in 1825. Well, he's not a member of that community. He's looking into it. And then, of course, we have this issue that, you know, not all sin eaters are the same. And then we have the problem of how sin eaters are made and how the job is passed down. And then we have the, the business of, well, if it was that common, why haven't we got a better record than we have got? All of these things we can talk about maybe a little bit later on. But to deal with Professor Evans, this story comes from... Um, a, a Welsh novelist, uh, Alan Rain, who wrote about it in the 1880s, I think, 80, early 1890s. And from there, it was picked up by a man called Bertram Puckle, who wrote a, quite a well-known book about funeral customs, published in 1926. So that's where the story comes from. Now, I looked into this, and it's rather interesting, actually. Once you find, I mean, you can trace this man, because he was quite an eminent Welshman, and he did, in fact, teach at this Presbyterian college. Um but the story was was in fact you know much more interesting than you might think because when he says um, that um, he saw a sin eater in this village, I mean you can I mean the most interesting thing that came up from my research is that yes, I mean this you know obscure Welsh village is in fact where this man was born, 
nobody who's written about it in a published sense knew that fact, but yet it, it is true. And so that sort of rather suggests that there is something in the story. But at the same time, there's also the case that when he saw this, Professor Evans was not Professor Evans. He was a nine-year-old boy. <laughs> um, so it's not a sort of, you know, a, a, an august Victorian gentleman um, sort of sceptically looking at a Welsh custom. It's a little nine-year-old boy running around in the village and someone's saying to him, that person over there is somebody you should be scared of. And that's not the same thing at all, I would suggest, actually. So again, I mean, you know, it's suggestive. I mean, there's nothing to say that he didn't believe it himself, but that's not the same thing as saying, well, we clearly have established that that person was a sin eater. Everyone accepted he was a sin eater. And, you know, this august um, religious personage has clearly labelled him as a sin eater in his, in his role as a professor at the Presbyterian College. He was, a, he was a school kid. He was bound to be frightened of strange wretches wandering around in, in villages. And we have similar sorts of stories like that. I mean, one of my favourites, which I turned up in the course of my research, comes from a woman called Naomi Jacobs. She's one of those sort of peculiar people who now nobody has heard of. But in the inter-year wars, she was a bit of a sort of mini celebrity. She wrote novels. Um, she was sort of fairly obviously gay at a time when it really wasn't done to be gay. And she went around wearing men's clothes quite a lot as well. So she was a sort of rather controversial figure. And uh, in one of her many memoirs, I mean, she must have written four or five different autobiographies. She mentions the story of her mother having seen the Sin Eater of a little village outside Sheffield in the 1850s. And it's very much the same thing. You know, what Naomi Jacobs hears is what her mother told her, which is that when she was a little girl, you know, literally in the prams, I mean, too young to remember it for herself, she and her nanny were out walking and they saw the village Sin Eater and the nanny pointed out the Sin Eater and told the little girl not to go anywhere near him. And so the mother remembers being frightened by the nanny by some sort of, again, sort of wretched tramp-like figure. And on that basis, we're invited to sort of say, well, there was you know, sin eating on a generational basis in this little village in Yorkshire. You know, the evidence doesn't support the sort of weight of of evidence, or the weight of weight of conclusion from evidence, sorry, that that is is put on it. In either of those cases, they are frightened children who are you know being given a scare story by by somebody for whatever reason. Maybe because they were genuinely seeing sin eaters, but equally because you know, well, don't talk to strangers. Genuine. I mean, what do you think? Are we in the world of, I say, urban myths, but I guess I should say rural myths? Well, not entirely. I mean, you know, the other way of looking at this is the way that the Welsh scholarly establishment looked at it in the 19th century when these stories started to hit the media, so to speak. So there's a sort of period from the 1850s to the 19, uh, to 1900. This is the early emergence of sort of folklore as an academic discipline. Um, and sin eating was one of the one of the things that folklorists were quite interested in in this period. And so there's three or four accounts that appear in the journal Folklore, which has started to be published then or were picked up by folklore from, from uh, earlier journals. And again, I mean, you know, they are being told by English people living in Wales. I mean, one of them is an example is a man called Matthew Mogridge, who lived just outside Swansea. And Mogridge was actually from Yorkshire and had married a Welsh woman and settled down to the life of a country gentleman in outside Swansea. And he contributed a little memoir um, to a the Society of Welsh Antiquaries journal in 1850, 1855. And again, he's talking in exactly the way that we've become used to hearing it about a custom which he was just in time to catch the very tail end of. He's talking about the, the Ammon Valley. So that's a very rural area north of Swansea, Welsh-speaking and you know, considered to be inhabited by sort of primitive people. If you're an English country gentleman in the big city, just out you know, the Swansea area at any rate. 
And so he he has heard about this place where sin eating still goes on and writes the the local antiquaries journal saying, you know, I, I gather this is, you know, was practiced until maybe five or ten years ago. It's shocking, isn't it? This this led to quite a quite a correspondence. And the same thing sort of happens later on when folklore starts publishing similar sorts of accounts. The same thing happens with, you know, sort of Welsh worthy, so you know, educated Welshmen, churchmen responding absolutely indignantly to these sorts of stories. Um, so the guy who was the schoolmaster in this village in, in, in Ammon wrote indignantly to a Welsh language journal in Welsh saying, I've been the, the, the school teacher in this village for 20 years. I've never heard of such a thing. And the priest, the local, well, not the priest, the local Anglican Church of Wales vicar wrote saying, you know, I've conducted funeral services in this village for 20 years. And I know all the people in this village and all the villages around it, and I've never heard of such a thing. They are basically saying that we are being looked down on by all these superior English people who would like to believe that the Welsh are a bunch of superstitious yokels who really ought to be anglicised. That's the counter-proposal. So they're seeing it as a sort of cultural warfare, effectively, where English people are using this as an example of why the Welsh are not really up to snuff and need to sort of move out of their superstitious ways, as I say, mainly by learning to speak English and start behaving like English people. And there is an extensive correspondence along these lines by, you know, really quite eminent Welsh priests, theologians, educators, and so on throughout the 19th century, which hasn't been tuned into because it's in Welsh. That's interesting. But nonetheless, in a way, they're just the kind of people who would either not have heard about it, because presumably these sort of things, they take place amongst, well, superstition. I mean, the way I would describe superstition, it's not that it's a religion that, that I don't believe in. It's it's like something that is, you believe in two things at the same time. It's like, right. I believe in the Christian God, I believe in all these things, but just in case I'll throw salt over my shoulder, you know. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, that, that's not, a, that's not a, an unfair way of looking at it. You could do it that way as well. But I mean, yeah, the, this is the thing. I mean, you know, the, the, the clergymen are the the doorkeepers. You know, I mean, okay, they exist in a an anglicized, civilized, scientific society by by the end of this period. But they have to have the the other foot on the other, you know, through the doorway in the in the Welsh society. They have to bury these people. It, it's almost beyond belief that they could, you know. Could have, and they have to be able to speak Welsh as well, of course, that they could exist in these villages and not know that inside yeah. this village there was this tramp who's going around to people's houses and absolving people of sins before they can get there. I mean, you know, bear in mind that, I mean, again, this is one of the interesting things, isn't it? That, that the way it's portrayed is, is it, that it is a sort of um, a much less authorised form of religion. I mean, sin eating is something that takes place inside your house or just outside it, not in the churchyard, not at the, not at the graveside. And potentially, it's something that's done before the before the the local vicar gets there. So, I mean, yeah, you could imagine that in some cases it was going on, and the vicars weren't happy about it. But I mean, you can't sort of have it both ways, Russell. I suppose. I mean, yeah, the the the, per, the person I mentioned earlier who sort of first wrote about this was quite a well known man, actually, John Aubrey, one of the very first antiquarians and seventeenth century figure of some some note, actually. And yeah, I mean, when I say that the earliest accounts go back to the 1640s. It's Aubrey who gives us this. And he says, you know, Mr. Gwynn, who was the the rector in um, a little Welsh village um, uh, in Brecknockshire, so-called Llangors, which is on Llangors Lake, still there just by the Black Mountains. Um, He tried to stamp it out in in the 1640s and he couldn't succeed. 
So, you know, you can't have it both ways and say, well, Vickers were aware of it and trying to stamp it out but right. and weren't aware of it. It's got to be kind of either it's totally hidden or not. And I mean, this is this is one of the reasons I've been so fascinated to do this research, because, you know, as a historian, one of the hardest things to prove is is a negative. How do you prove that sin eating doesn't exist? You know, and, and I came up with an interesting way of doing it. It was suggested to me by a former curator, actually, at one of the Welsh folk museums in Cardiganshire. And he told me about something I hadn't been aware of, which was that there was a second Welsh custom in this period that also sort of slightly amazed English people. And that was the custom of laying flowers on people's graves. And I mean, again, to us in the 21st century, well, what's so strange about that? It's what everybody does, but it's not what people used to do in, you know, sort of 1800. It was, it was a custom that was unique to Wales in 1800. And English people commented on it quite a lot. So there is this literature of the travel journey. And that's what I turned to. So, I mean, a lot of English people went on sort of, you know, who couldn't go on the grand tour to, to Europe because the Napoleonic Wars were going on. They would go on the grand tour within the boundaries of Britain and Ireland, and they would tour around Wales. And Sounds a bit like COVID. <laughs> Very similar. We can understand it. And they would often write up these accounts in books. There are literally dozens and dozens of English travellers' accounts of, of customs of Wales and my travels through, you know, Welsh Wales and what a strange and primitive place it is. And, you know, I mean, I, you can go through them. Dozens and dozens of them mention this custom of the Welsh laying flowers on the grave, and none of them refer to sin eating. Huh. That's the interesting thing to me. I mean, I could certainly say that, you know, I could believe that sin eating is less commonly going to be encountered than laying flowers on the grave, which is something where the flowers lie there for a few days or weeks before they fade away and you see them. But nonetheless, the idea that hundreds of people go through Wales, which isn't that big a country, and encounter the flowers on the graves but not encounter sin eating, I find that quite hard to believe. There's a uh, custom in Japan, um, I don't know how widespread it is, but quite often apparently at the, at the grave of somebody, there'll be a box. So if you're there to pay your respects to the person, you'll put your business card in there. So the person who comes along and cleans the grave and looks after the grave for the family, you know, they can look at the business cards and see who's been there to visit. I thought that was, uh, <laughs> that was very sensible. <laughs> well, you see, I mean, again, the fact that you know about that, you know, I don't know to what extent that's something that Japanese people want to broadcast about their society or not. But we know about it because it's been reported by people who've traveled to Japan. It's a very similar sort of thing. In investigating all of this, I discovered, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, that you know, there's this whole literature in Welsh. I mean, I am Welsh, but I come from the English-speaking part of Wales, and I don't speak Welsh. But I discovered that there there had been a number of Welsh folklorists who'd looked into just, I mean, they'd been doing theses on folklore generally, actually, um, who had written theses in Welsh. And one of them was a man called John Owen. And I spoke to a woman, Caitlin Stevens, who had worked with him. He's dead now, but she remembered him and his, his work. And she told me that there was some um, some material in his his thesis. So I went to the museum outside Cardiff. It's called St. Fagan's. It's part of the National Museum of Wales, where the archives are kept. And I had a look at this thesis with a, a colleague who could speak some Welsh. Um, and we discovered from that that this was based on some tape recordings that had been taken in Wales in the 1960s and 1970s by these Welsh-speaking folklorists going around speaking to elderly Welsh people about Welsh customs in Welsh. And these are these are the most revealing things I found. And again, I mean, I've had them translated, and I'll, I'll, I'll make them available in English. There are two or three stories. They come from Snowdonia. So again, I mean, the most distant and Welsh part of Wales. And they talk about, you know, a, a sin eater in, in a village called Warnfor, which is 
I mean, literally like sort of 20 people. It's a tiny little village. And, you know, the stories of, you know, somebody living in the woods. And I mean, it's, it's obviously sort of associated with Sin Eating because there's this sort of account where you have to avoid him. But every now and then when somebody dies, you bake the best cake you possibly can out of the best ingredients. And you leave it on a special stone in the middle of this wood and the, the, the Sin Eater will come along and eat it. Now, I mean, again, the interesting thing about this, I mean, these are remarkable stories. And again, I mean, they've never been published and they only exist in sort of crumbling tapes in Welsh, in the Welsh National Archives. Um, And I'm the only person who seems to know that they even exist. So, I mean, I'm quite proud of that. But I mean, yeah, the interesting thing is that, you know, these are stories that Welsh people are telling about stories they've heard from, you know, other people. Nobody, again, has baked a cake for the Sin Eater, seen the Sin Eater. It's kind of a, you know, sort of a game of Chinese whispers. And the same set of recordings also record something else, which is that, um, you know, one of these people sort of says, well, you know, I knew what it was because I'd read about it in a book. And he mentions the book, it's name, this book I read in, in, in my Welsh school in 1910 or 15 by Finnamore. So I just, you know, I sort of had to find what this book was. Well, Finnamore turns out to be an English folklorist. He's written a book which mentions sin eating because he's heard it from reading John Aubrey. And then he's written a book in Welsh, and the Welsh have read it, and so they picked up Sin Eating from the English <laughs> about what John Aubrey had said in you know 1670. So there's this peculiar circularity where there doesn't seem to be a Welsh tradition that goes all the way back to the 17th century, but there is a Welsh tradition that goes back to about 1900, and it's been seeded by the English from John Aubrey's work. And John Aubrey is you know fascinating from this point of view because he, all of the Sin Eating material, well, all of it is about 20 lines doesn't appear in his most famous works. I mean, he's most famous, Aubrey, if you've heard of him at all. You've probably heard of him because he's sort of the great 17th century gossip. He wrote a couple of books called Brief Lives that give us all of these sort of wonderful anecdotal sort of stories. The sort of, if you've heard anything interesting about anybody living in the 17th century, it probably comes from Aubrey's Brief Lives because he's the one who gossips about these people. But it's not in those books. It's in a, a manuscript called The Remains of Gentilism and Judaism. That wasn't that was written by Aubrey in the 1680s and was not published until the 1880s. Now, this is really interesting, actually, because that means, in theory, that everything that Aubrey says about sin eating wasn't available to people. And all of the material that I've been talking about, which comes up, you know, from people publishing stuff in English from between about 1715 and 19, uh, you know, 1880, couldn't have been influenced by it. But again, when you look into it carefully, it turns out that Aubrey's manuscript had been circulated really quite widely. Lots of people had read it and commented on it and been to the British Museum and reviewed it. And I mean, again, I mean, without wanting to bore your listeners, there's quite an extensive sort of bibliographical inquiry attached to this work I've been doing on Sydney that sort of shows how widespread Aubrey's work actually was at the time when people are starting to talk about Sydney in other English books. And I think we can basically say that it goes, you know, people have got it from Aubrey. And Aubrey fundamentally then becomes the only source, in a sense. Right. Because everybody else is sort of picking up whispers of things that apparently are happening in little villages that is dying out and they've heard rumours. And when you trace it back to who's actually seen a sin eater, who, I mean, all, well, Aubrey says he saw one in 1680 in a little village outside Herefordshire. And again, it's rather obscure when you read his manuscript as to whether he actually saw him, but he does describe him as an ugly, lean, lamentable rascal. That's the way he puts it. So Aubrey is apparently the only person who, you know, unambiguously as an adult saw a sin eater who he knew was a sin eater and describes him. And everybody else is just kind of echoing and echoing and echoing down the decades and the centuries. 
this one single source. And so it becomes a question of well, how well does John Aubrey know the Welsh marches? And he came, you know, he didn't live there. He came from, you know, sort of down in in the sort of Worcestershire Somerset border area, but he had property there. His family had left him some property there, and he travelled to Hereford once or twice. So this is interesting. Aubrey's an outsider as well. He's picking up what other people are telling him and possibly misinterpreting it. That's my 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 basic conclusion at the end of all of this inquiry. That seems more likely than that there's thousands of sin eaters going unrecorded, um, making each other into new sin eaters and somehow dying out just before we could possibly get our hands on them and interview them. So so it's been a been a peculiar old search. I mean, I've been doing this now since 2017. I've just about come to the end of the researches now. And it's it's very much like chasing your tail. Well, it sounds like you've caught your tail, at least. I have something in my mouth. I hope it's <laughs> I hope it's nothing to do with decomposing bodies. <laughs> oh, well. Well, I don't know what to say. I mean, you've polished off the Sin Eaters, and I think, you know, I was ready to believe, you know, I want to believe, but uh, I think you've kind of persuaded me that one source from one person who visited Wales once is is maybe, it's maybe not enough. So, So I guess you've convinced me that probably there's nothing there. So, so what else are you working on? Uh, because that's obviously that's obviously pretty much done now. It is, and it isn't. I mean, I think that we have to. What we have to learn from this is that there are certain things that I mean. You know, sometimes I get accused of you know knocking down stories that were too good to be investigated, and it's a sort of you know, uh, uh, an associated learning I get from this. There are certain things that somehow have resonance with this, and I'm very interested in this. I don't understand entirely why, but the cynic is a figure who. As soon as you describe it, people get very excited by it. The imagination starts tingling almost as soon as you mention exactly what it's supposed to be and exactly what sort of people are supposed to do it. And that's why the scene eater gets into film. That's why the scene eater gets into novels. They are all over film and novels. And that in itself is a cultural phenomenon, which I think is worth investigating and describing. And the other thing that I'm working on at the moment is exactly like that. I've been looking, this is a much older story. I've been doing it all my life, really. But um, I've been looking into um, the figure of a Victorian era sort of ghost scare, you might say. But it's a ghost scare, which is a lot more terrible than most. And again, quite a few of your readers have probably at least heard the name, Spring Hill Jack, which is what it's about. And the reason I've been studying this all my life is that when I was a kid, I mean, I'm literally 11 years old, and I first came across this story in the Reader's Digest book of sort of uncanny facts. Um, but a lot of people of my age will probably remember was knocking around a lot of houses in the 1970s. It scared the pants off me because it's so stirring of the imagination. And and Spring Hill Jack is another story which a lot of people have heard and remembered because the figure is such a memorable one. It's very like the Senator from that point of view. And that's the other thing I've been researching. Well, in truth, you and I discussed this before, whether or not we might talk about Spring Hill Jack. So hopefully you'll come on again and talk about spring Jack sometime. I would be delighted to. It's a much more complicated story. It might take us a bit longer, but the evidence is, is equally intriguing when you get down into the dirty details. Okay. Well, um, uh, Mike Dash, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Been a pleasure. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you have the time, then a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever it is, that would be fantastic. Uh, and generally, if you, if you have any feedback at all, do feel free to drop me uh, a line. My email is hog 
g.russell at gmail.com. That's two G's, two S's and two L's. Okay, that's it. I really hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll be listening again next time. So bye for now. Thank you.